Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, and welcome to Heritage Live events. Autocracy versus democracy is our subject today, the return of great power rivalry. Quick notes for this session. Uh, it is being recorded and will be emailed to you and posted on heritage.org slash events within 48 hours. <clears throat> Please submit questions in the questions box and identify yourself by name and organization. Um, all attendees are in listen-only mode. Today we welcome um, with us uh, Matthew Kronick, uh, professor, professor uh, in the Department of Government and Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, uh, and also deputy director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Uh, we also have Dr. Nadia Shadlov, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute and former U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy. Dr. Daniel Twining, President, International Republican Institute. James Carfano, uh, Dr. James Carfano, Vice President and Catherine Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the um, Heritage Foundation. He is also the E.W. Richardson Fellow at Heritage. And I am uh, Haley Dale. I'm the Senior Fellow for Public Diplomacy at the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom of the Heritage Foundation. And I now invite our speakers to turn on their cameras. Good afternoon. And so today we'll be discussing uh, some uh, matters of, of great uh, in international and national importance for all of us. And um, uh, the, the national security strategy acknowledges that the world has returned to a state of great power rivalry. Uh, today, the United States faces unprecedented challenges, yet there is reason for optimism. History shows that this country is better positioned to endure and prevail as a global leader than autocratic regime regimes and systems like China and Russia. The impetus for the events today um, came out of Matthew Kronick's new book, The Return of Great Power Rivalry, Democracy versus Autography from the Ancient World to the United States and China. Um, it is a very important read for the way um, the world has been going recently. And I found it very invigorating and I found it very optimistic. Um, and that was really good at this point in time. If I could, if I could start with a quote from the book, um, America's greatest strength in its coming competition with Russia and China is not its military might or economic heft, but its institutions. For all its faults, America's fundamentals are still better than Russia's and China's. There's good reason to believe, therefore, that the American era will endure and the autocratic challenges posed by China and Russia will run out of steam. I would like to start the program, if I could, um, with uh, Matthew Kronick, 
and Matt, if I could pose a question to you, ask you to comment in a, two or three minutes uh, to get us started. Um, if you could, in a few words, give us your perspective on how democracies have fared against autocracies and what are we predicting out of this, these studies about the future of American power? Well, thank you very much, Heli, and uh, thanks very much to Heritage and IRI for hosting uh, this event. Um, thanks to my co-panelists, a really all-star uh, panel, distinct, uh, distinguished uh, experts, delighted to have them uh, here. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. Um, as uh, Heli said, the national security strategy, national defense strategy say that the return of great power competition with Russia and China is the foremost threat to the national security and economic well-being of the United States. Uh, and there's something of a conventional wisdom, I would say, that um, perhaps these autocracies have an advantage uh, in this competition. We hear people say that uh, President Xi and the Chinese Communist Party can plan for the long term. Uh, they can mass resources, pull levers, get things done. Uh, meanwhile, in the United States, we're dysfunctional, we're gridlocked. Uh, we can't see beyond two and four year election cycles. Uh, and in this book, I argue that that conventional wisdom is incorrect, that actually democracies have advantages in long run geopolitical competitions. Uh, and so I make the argument in kind of three parts. First is um, almost more political theory. What are the advantages and disadvantages of autocracies and democracies uh, in general? And in, in this part of the book, I draw on Polybius, Machiavelli, Montesquieu, some classical political theorists, uh, but also draw on a lot of recent social science research and economics and political science. Uh, showing that uh, democracies have advantages in certain discrete uh, issue areas of economics, finance, alliances, uh, uh, making better decisions on issues of war and peace. Uh, and so I kind of aggregate these arguments up into a bigger argument about fitness in great power competition. If you're doing better in these discrete uh, economic, diplomatic, and military areas, uh, then shouldn't we expect that democracies are also going to do better uh, in long-run geopolitical competitions? Uh, then the second part of the book is history. I look at seven democratic versus autocratic rivalries, starting with the Greeks and the Persians 2,500 years ago, uh, going through to the end of the Cold War. And, and I show that democracies don't always achieve everlasting hegemony, but they do tend to do better uh, than their autocratic rivals and for uh, the pre precise reasons identified uh, in the first part of the book. Uh, and then the third part of the book is brings it to the present, says, what does this mean for the U.S., Russia, and China today? And I evaluate the strengths of uh, these three countries as strategic competitors uh, and conclude that the United States does have its problems, as many people like to point out today, but that our fundamentals are, are still um, uh, much better than Russia's and China's, uh, and that uh, there's every reason to believe that the United States will continue to play its uh, role uh, as the leading state in the international system. Uh, so I had a lot of fun uh, researching and writing the book. It's uh, pretty sweeping, uh, 2,500 years of history uh, with relevance for today. And uh, I enjoyed writing it and hope that uh, people enjoy reading it. So thanks very much. Thanks very much. I must say it's a very enjoyable read for it, and especially for the, for the span of learning that you have covered in it. Um, uh, it, it it's, a, it, it's, it's a very um, approachable book. I will... I'll pitch it over to, to uh, Daniel's finding in the meantime. It's great to be here with you and Jim and, and Nadia, hopefully, and with Matt. I will just say, I think he's written one of the best books of the year, and I hope everybody will pick it up. It's a pleasure to read. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a model 
of political science uh, that is very historically rich and deploys evidence in ways that are really approachable and admirable. And so it's a pleasure to read, unlike much political science these days. Uh, so I hope everybody will pick it up. It's one of those books I wish I had written, which, uh, you know, is, I hope, a form of flattery, Matt. Um, but let me just say a word. Uh, I know we're going to be talking about this, why this is so important today. Uh, we are in a great power competition, as the national security strategy written by, among others, Nadia Shadlow argues. Uh, Russia and China uh, are weaponizing uh, the political domain, including uh, conducting various forms of information warfare against democracies. Uh, they think that democracy matters in great power competition because they are attacking and assaulting it uh, in other countries, including in the United States and in uh, among our closest friends and allies. In the Chinese case, a country like Australia, in the Russian case, uh, a country like Ukraine, really the list goes on and on. So if our competitors think that democracy matters in great power competition, we should also. Uh, we should also accept one of the core tenets of Matt's excellent book, which is that uh, autocratic regimes are not stable. Actually, their greatest Achilles heel is that they are unstable. They are unstable because they're worried about uh, their own people and the fact that they are governing not necessarily through popular consent. Uh, and uh, that is uh, a strategic uh, Achilles heel for them, uh, that uh, democracies look, democracies are messy. Democracy looks messy. We have free and vibrant media covering every twist and turn in our country's politics and in our national conversations. That's not the case in Russia and China, right? Um, but we have these wells of strength, which I will end just in pointing them out, and Matt has highlighted many of them. Uh, we have inclusive institutions. Uh, we are not governed by the whims of one man, as is China or Russia. Uh, we forge effective alliances. Uh, countries are willing to make long-term military partnerships with us. We innovate like crazy, which has its applications on the battlefield, but perhaps even more important in the realm of economics. The richest countries in the world are all democracies, and on and on. Uh, so we're living in a time when uh, many people think that authoritarianism is ascendant, and in fact, we should have more faith uh, in our democratic institutions and in the fact that our competitors are actually quite afraid of them. Thank you very much for those remarks, Dan. And, and Nadia, are we able to uh, reach each other again? <clears throat> So I think so. I apologize. We're having a storm here in Connecticut, and it might have interfered. Um, I'm on a different system now, so hopefully I'm hopefully I'm in a different way. <laughs> that, that's what happens. Yeah. So please, please, if you would give us a, a favor of a, you know, two or three minutes of remarks, and, and what does what goes into formulating a, a policy and a strategy in dealing with? Um, this global landscape that has emerged where we are facing the rivals of China and Russia again, uh, even though for a while it looked like the United States was going to be the sole superpower in the world. Sure. Um, well, first of all, I would like to congratulate Matt. It is the kind of book that anyone who reads it wishes they had written. It's, it's extremely, it's comprehensive, but it's also very well written and clear. Uh, it's really an excellent use of, of history. I think, Matt, you're a political scientist, right? But this is a book that would make historians proud, I think. And also for those out there who are looking actually to even use the book in a classroom, it's, it's very clear um, in terms of the domestic institutions in this country and their strengths and talking about the early founding of the country. 
So although it's externally oriented, I thought that um, I thought that you really did a good job on that. So in a way, when the world seems very gloomy, and often it does these days, I was struck by the fundamental optimism of your argument, as Hele mentioned. Um, at its core, it's a resounding strength, uh, it's a resounding call for the strength of democracies, a view that democracies are force multipliers, uh, but specifically the re Republican institutions, small r, um, that make our country so strong, rule of law, constraints on government power, you do a really good job of discussing how those internal strengths lead to external strengths. However, having said that, for the sake of argument and or in order to make this hopefully an interesting panel, um, I thought there are three areas that I would like to bring up for discussion that might be interesting for you to comment on. So first, um, I think you undervalue in some senses the role of technology and its uh, ability to kind of possibly strengthen, uh, to um, threaten the foundations of democracy. And I don't mean technology in the, Dan made the point about how external actors are using technologies uh, to undermine our system. But even with our, within our own system, the rise of what Sheila Zuboff, the Harvard um, professor, I think business school professor has called surveillance capitalism. Just the use of technologies in our own society, um, how will that impact democracy and our institutions down the line? Um, second, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the durability of our institutions. You do make a good point there, talking about how historically um, there have there have been periods where um, you know, that domestic politics is so contentious, um, we seem to be uh, weakening as a democracy. Um, Walter Russell Mead had an interesting column today, actually, just about um, the bitterness and the partisanship um, and the polarization in our society and how, um, you know, do you, could you comment a little bit on that and on the strength of our institutions? And then finally, third, what about democracy around the world? So Dan, you know, you're, you're at IRI. Uh, so if you didn't comment that much about the sense of the third wave of democratization externally, are other countries likely to develop durable Republican institutions? Uh, and I thought you could comment on that. So those three points for the sake of argument. Okay, well, thank you so much, Nadia. And we'll finally go uh, pitch it over to James Carapano uh, at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome, James. Um, hey, thanks. <laughs> what, what can we do to defend those institutions? Uh, of American democracy and keep persuading the world that it is the, the, the best um, model of governance and that will, uh, will this take military power, will it take the public diplomacy tools, will it take better communication? Um, you want to give us a, a few thoughts on, on, on those ideas? Right, well I do, I have two recommendations that I'd like to put on the table. First, I'd like to pay the ultimate uh, compliment to, uh, to Matt's book. It's not, it should be a bookend. So at one end of your bookshelf, you should have Natan Sharansky's The Case for Democracy, which I think is a brilliant book that really explains about the weaknesses of authoritarian regimes and competing with democracy. And then have Matt's book at the other end, which really kind of gives you the, the blueprint for the geopolitical competition. I think between them, 
just two brilliant books that really stand the test of time. And then put up whatever you want in the, the in the middle. Get get Nadia's book, just put that in the middle. So um, I just like to say I'm a child of the 60s. This event so much reminds me of the 60s. So remember Hollywood Square? So it's just the same thing. You know, Nadia's got the Paul Lynn Square in the middle there. Um, you know, they also they also used to have all these Three Stooges reruns in the 60s. So doctor, doctor. Doctor, doctor. Um, one is, I think, uh, the crucial point is, is the, I think the, the great power competition is the defining framework of our time. I think Nadia got that exactly right in the national security strategy. Matt acknowledges that in his book. And I think what's really important is this is really a bipartisan conception. This isn't Trump. Um, this is, I think, generally a consensus of how Americans view the, the way to protect American power in the world is to deal with this competition. Uh, I think there's a, a lesson there. If people think that, that November is really going to change anything, I don't think it will because I think the geopolitical factors are the same. And in the next four years, we'll be dealing with the same dynamics we are now. I think that bipartisanship is a, is a strength for America and for our friends and allies around the world. And it's important that, that, we, that we recognize that. This, the second one is... is um, again, hearkening back to the 60s, where we had a degree of bipartisanship in foreign policy, uh, at least before the Vietnam War, uh, is the nature of what do you do to compete? And I think Matt hits on this really in his, his, um, it, well in his book. The, one of the defining notions of great power competition is it's difficult because the great powers have difficulty really in diminishing the other side, right? So it, it, there isn't a decisive way to do this. It is more of a long-term competition, which in a long-term competition, you're as focused as protecting your own strengths and your capacity and ability to compete as you are with going after the other guy. And so what are the great institutions that allow the United States to really compete on the global stage? Obviously, the capacity to defend of ourselves, but also our, our individual freedoms and liberty, which Matt points out are, are one of the great one of the great glues, one of the great resiliences of, of, of America's competitiveness. And of course, the, the free market institutions that allow our economy to grow and prosper. So the capacity to keep ourselves free, safe, and prosperous while we're dealing with the Chinas and Russias of the world is absolutely crucial. So maintaining those institutions are as important as diminishing the other guys dealing with the gray zones and everything else. I think Matt's book hits on that well. I think Nadia's strategy uh, well, not Nadia, the president's strategy, but Nadia helped write it. Um, I think that the national security strategy articulates that incredibly well. And, and Dan's work at IRI, I really think has been, just to pay a compliment to Dan, the epitome of that, really recognizing, bringing all the elements and instruments to the table in great power competition and focusing on uh, not about keeping America in the fight. And so I think what's terrific about this panel is you have, I think, three of the, the greatest really big minds in thinking about this today who get it, who understand what we need to do to get this right. So thanks for the panel, Helen, and I'm so excited to be here with the panelists, but back to you. Well, well thanks so much, James, and I couldn't agree more about the, about the quality of this panel. Matt, you had some, uh, some comments uh, from Nadia, some questions, um, I think specifically um, in part about you know, the technology, but also just what we do to foster our institutions here and strengthen them at home. Yes, well, I'm, I'm very uh, flattered by the kind remarks on, on the book from our panelists, so thank you very much. Uh, and I should have known that Nadia would uh, follow up with some tough questions after, after the praise. Uh, so first on um, technology, 
Um, you know, many people are commenting on how technology may strengthen the hand of autocrats. Um, uh, surveillance technology allows them to track their citizens, facial recognition. Uh, you know, we see in China the um, uh, social credit scores they have. Uh, and if um, people have a poor social credit score because they're jaywalking or other things, they can lose the right to buy train tickets. Uh, and um, so I think it, it is the case that technology is strengthening the hand of autocrats. But I think also technology strengthening the hand of Democrats uh, in other ways. And we're seeing this now with the uh, pandemic, with uh, candidates raising money, uh, assembling, um, getting out their message uh, purely virtually. Uh, we see in other countries like Estonia that people can vote uh, from their beds using uh, cell phone uh, technology. And so I think there's something of an arms race uh, here uh, who will um, use this technology better to strengthen uh, their system. Uh, and as Daniel Twining rightly pointed out, I think democracies have shown themselves to be more innovative uh, over the years. So it's a competition that's playing out, but I'm um, confident that we uh, we can win this one. On the durability of our institutions, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I draw on Machiavelli in the book, and many people think of Machiavelli as somebody who was a fan of autocrats, uh, but he was also, um, uh, uh, in his other work, um, thought that republics were, were the better form of uh, government and drew a lot on the history of the Roman Republic. And he pointed out how the clashes in the Senate that many people saw as, as messy uh, actually led to uh, Rome becoming freer at home and stronger uh, abroad. And I think the same's uh, true in the United States. We, we are polarized. We uh, are sometimes gridlocked. Uh, but I think it's um, one of the uh, remarkable aspects of our system. You know, it's uh, the case that it's clear that President Trump and some Democrats in Congress don't really like each other very much. Uh, and how are they dealing with it? You know, with tweets, with hearings, with with speeches. And I think that's a beautiful part of our system that we handle these political differences through these peaceful means. If there, uh, when when there are similar um, political relationships in, in Russia and China, it ends in blood uh, in the streets. Um, and on democracy around the world, I um, did come away with a kind of different understanding of um, democratization after having researched this book, um, because I do think that the environment around the world uh, for democracy and autocracy is really set to a large degree by the leading powers. Uh, and um, I see throughout the book, you know, going all the way back to the Greeks and the Persians, you saw Athens trying to promote democratic forms of government. Uh, Greek, uh, the Persians trying to overthrow those democratic forms of government and set up dictators uh, loyal to them. Uh, so I think after the Iraq war, um, democracy promotion got a bad name. But, it, you know, in, in the book, I see that it's really part of 2,500 years of history of great powers trying to replicate uh, their institutions abroad. And uh, as the United States uh, grew in uh, power, we see democracy around the world uh, spreading accordingly. And you can almost look at a chart. Uh, and, uh, you know, after 1991 and the collapse of the Soviet Union, you see the number of democracies around the world greatly increase. And we have seen um, a trend toward backsliding over the past decade or so. And I think that may be because of the relative decline of the United States, of China uh, and Russia, to some degree, providing an alter alternate model. Uh, and so I think um, uh, this is one of one of the other stakes uh, in this competition, that uh, as the United States succeeds, uh, so will democracy around the world succeed. Have we seen sort of a two steps forward, one step back kind of phenomenon um, in the past 10 years as far as the buildings of democracy is concerned? We have, Hella. I mean, one thing about the post-Cold War period is really, um, you know, the Soviet empire collapsed and uh, countries rushed towards political freedom and inclusive institutions. Uh, in many respects, what is left are harder cases. 
And what I've been so struck by really over the last year, I mean, COVID obviously has shut down street protests in pretty meaningful ways. But uh, 2019 into early 2020 saw more people power movements around the world, greater numbers of citizens taking to the streets to demand democratic rights and freedoms than any time since 1989. Uh, this is really important, right? This really, I think, is material evidence against the autocratic ascendancy thesis. And people have not been doing this in easy countries. They've been doing it in China, uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, they've been doing it in uh, Maduro's Venezuela, where 90% of citizens don't have enough to eat because of the collapse of that petro state. Uh, they've been doing it in Sudan, uh, where they deposed a 30 plus year war criminal who had been in power and driving the country into the ground. Uh, they've been doing it in Algeria, which is really not fertile terrain in a Jeffersonian sense. So. Uh, I don't think, and I know no one here is doing it, but we should not uh, underestimate the power and appeal of uh, democratic freedoms and political rights. Uh, actually, uh, even as some people in the West have argued that these are values in decline, we see people around the world really fighting for them, risking their lives for them. And last thing I'll say, Hella, I mean, this is important context. Um, uh, Democracy isn't working very well in many countries. Democracy has been underperforming over that decade plus that Matt identifies as this period of, as you say, two steps forward, one step back. Uh, a lot of what we see in our work, we're working in almost 100 countries doing this bottom-up democratic development uh, partnership uh, uh, with very brave people. What we see is that people want their democracy to work better. Nobody is protesting for uh, Kremlin-style kleptocracy or Chinese Communist Party style one man rule, uh, they, they want to hold their governments to account. And that includes in democracies, right? That includes in uh, places like Turkey or the Philippines. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's not just sort of a struggle from autocracy to democracy. It's very much about living up to the ideals. I mean, just like in America, we continue to struggle to live up to the ideals of our founding fathers. That's actually happening around the world. Nadia, do you feel that, um the administration is roughly on the right path in its relationship with China. We have had a lot of um, uh, ups and downs specifically in the last three months, um, or half year, I should say, regarding the spread of the coronavirus. Um, how is that going to shape our relationship with China going forward? Well, I, th I think the, the coronavirus has, has reinforced trends that we've been seeing for some time. Uh, so, I mean, in, yes, the administration is on the right path. Uh, that doesn't mean there are ups and downs. There are, of course, always ups and downs in the implementation of any policy. But fundamentally, uh, the administration explicitly said we need a new, we need to recalibrate this relationship because we've been taken advantage of for a long, long time. And I think what's interesting is that, um, as Matt points out in his book too, that there had been um, there had been an identification of concerns for a long time um, and among bi bipartisan sets of concerns in this country. If you go back consistently since 2005, Democrats and Republicans expressed concern. So what this administration did was essentially say we need to try a new set of tactics and approaches to try to change the trajectory. Um, and I also think called out very explicitly, basically said, you know, we're concerned now that China's using the rules of the international liberal order against us. And I think it did so in a, in a, in a very straightforward way. 
um, maybe in the past that hadn't been stated in such a straightforward way. So I think Corona has really just emphasized all of the things that we've seen over the past few years, uh, the importance of states as arbiters of power and as the, the entities that actually hold power in the international system. It doesn't mean you don't cooperate. Um, of course, we need to cooperate, but you have to acknowledge also that states are the ones that wield power. Um, it also uh, called out concerns about, about uh, the way China um, has been acting for a long time, Corona made that evident, uh, disinformation, uh, lack of clarity and transparency about what was actually going on. Um, and so I think it just reinforced many of the trends we saw. And it's continuing. Well, I certainly think that we have seen a whole new level of information warfare coming out of China. Um, and which has been quite overwhelming. James, you wrote some years ago a book uh, with the title, We Hear War. And I think uh, um, that title is pretty prophetic, given where we are today. Do you want to comment a little bit on the challenge we face in, in dealing with disinformation coming out of China and, and Russia and Iran and other places? Yeah, I'll, I'll just offer one, one quick comment, which, which is yes. one of the findings in the book. And reflect back on a, on a memoir that a guy did on guerrilla warfare during World War II. And I love the title of the book. It says, The Jungle is Neutral. And his point is, you know, Mythology about these these natives, you know, the, running around the jungle and they have every advantage and they know the jungle and everything and these poor guys chasing them through the jungle and dying. He goes, that's not what my experience at all. He goes, was, we were miserable. We were starving. You know, we had diseases. We had, you know, we were we had, you know, all kinds of horrible bug bites and everything. He says it was it was awful. He said the jungle didn't care. The jungle was just being the jungle, and it really affected both sides equally and it was who mastered the environment that had the the advantage and so one of the principles in my book was is is the technology is neutral it doesn't know it's a democrat or an authoritarian it's it's just an electron and it is really how the competitors choose to use the technologies that really in the end determines who has advantages and and we have seen the chinese for example being incredibly innovative in their use of technology for example with the social credit score but i think one of the conclusions is my book is that free and open societies by their nature are more creative the more adaptive the more innovative and in the end if you, that is a path which will probably outthink uh and and out innovate the other side uh so I, I'm always in the camp that you put the minimum restrictions for public safety and national security on the system that you have to, and then you let the system grow and adapt to its competitors, and in the end, you'll probably come out on top. If I could turn for a moment back to, to Matt and to his the thesis in his book, if we look at the challenges faced by our domestic institutions today, um, and they are quite significant. Um, you know, we, I, I have a Facebook posting about how the statues are starting to fight back because um, our history is is under attack, um, and 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 our institutions as well. Um, looking at American democracy, where do you think we'll be going, and 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 what can what can we all do to to preserve the very best parts of of the history and the institutions we have? Yes. Well, as I say in the book, I do think that our um you know, we often talk about our greatest strengths being our military power or economic might or our alliances. 
And um, I, I think our greatest strength is actually our Republican institutions and that those things flow uh, from that, that we have a strong economy because of our institutions. We have allies because of our institutions. We have this powerful military uh, because of our institutions. And so um, when we think about um, uh, this coming competition, I think strengthening ourselves, making sure our own uh, institutions are strong uh, is an important part of that. Uh, and there are people worried about um, the decline of the quality of American democracy, and I think we should um, take those seriously. Uh, but I, I guess um, I'm, I'm more optimistic. And um, you know, one of the um, uh, concerns people have today is that uh, President Trump is a dictator in waiting. He's trampling on uh, norms. Uh, but I think this is a concern that's really built into uh, the DNA of the American Constitution. You know, we were founded um, uh, fleeing uh, monarchs in Europe. People were concerned that George Washington was setting himself up as a dictator. If we remember the George W. Bush administration, people were concerned that he was creating a so-called imperial presidency. Um, so I think these um, concerns uh, that we have today are, are not new and are indeed um, evidence of the strength uh, of our institutions, not, not of their weakness. Helen, would you, could I just follow up with a question for the panel? Yes, on, yeah, because I think one of the and I and I and I think one of the things that was a genius of the Constitution was the notion when 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 the when the founders said, "What do you want? Do you want freedom? Do you want prosperity? Or do you want to be secure?" Their answer was, "Yes, we want all three. So, to Matt's point, they intentionally created a system which puts these three priorities always in conflict because it gave none of them priority, and it basically said, "You preserve a republic and a democracy." by constantly debating these to make sure that you're max, trying to maximize all three and you're not undermining any, any one of them. And so I wanted to, if it's okay, I wanted to ask Matt how we dealt with that concept in the book, but also ask Nadia how they accommodated that in, in the strategy. And then to Dan, is this is a concept that we try to share with others that in some, we want some degree of social conflict. We want unrest, we want debate. We want people constantly debating whether is this going to you know, protect us, but on the other hand, are we going to take away somebody's individual liberties? In a sense, we create these institutional conflicts because they're part of being healthy. What, what we want is we want order of liberty so it doesn't spill out in the chaos, but we want some of that tension. So would, would you mind if I just ask the three of them and their perspectives to just weigh Thanks. in on that? Thank you. Maybe, Matt, you could go first since yeah. it's your book. Yes, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, people look at the conflicts and, and messiness of democracies and, and see it as a weakness, and, and I think it, it, is a, it is a strength. And just one specific example, I talk about um, military effectiveness. And one thing that political scientists have found is that democracies are much more likely to win the wars that they fight. Uh, since the end of the Napoleonic Wars, democracies have won, I think, 76% of the wars that they've fought. Uh, and for autocracies, it's less than half. And so a number of different explanations as to why that might be the case, but one is uh, because uh, we do allow dissent. And so um, you know, there's debate uh, over issues of war and peace within the executive branch, between the executive and Congress, uh, among the population at large, uh, people criticizing government policy. Uh, and so it looks messy, but what it means is that when the chief executive is making these decisions, uh, he or she has been exposed to this wide variety of opinions, possible costs and benefits, and so tend to make more informed decisions. Uh, on the other hand, in an autocracy, the dictator is often surrounded by, yes, men or women, uh, telling the dictator what he or she wants to hear, and so they're not exposed to the same range of opinion uh, and tend to make bigger mistakes. And uh, you know, I point out in the book that 
Um, you know, uh, we see this tendency of autocracies to invade Russia in the winter, uh, both Napoleon and Hitler. And, you know, uh, democracies make our mistakes, too, but not not the big mistakes that end in uh, those kind of catastrophic uh, losses. Right. Uh, I think, um, Jim, just to quickly answer, I mean, I think fundamentally we dealt with it in the strategy by uh, articulating the importance of being confident in our system and in the healthiness of our system. And that confidence, um, even though democracies are a work in progress, as, as the point's been made over the past month many times, that fundamentally um, it's a healthy system, it's a good system, it can deal with dissension and debate and come out healthier. So ultimately, um, the theme of confidence, I think, was an important one. Yep, Dan? So to pick up this question of kind of competing and contending institutions, Jim, it's a very smart question. Um, you know, we just do a lot of work around uh, helping partners in other countries build strong and durable institutions uh, and, and to have political contestation channeled into those. We're very lucky to have such uh, robust ones in the United States. One thing we are seeing under COVID is leaders, including democratic leaders, really concentrating extraordinary executive powers with themselves. And I would just underline the importance of parliamentary oversight. Uh, I would underline the importance of free and open media to tell people the truth, including about what's happening to public health. Uh, 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 accountable, responsive institutions so that health assistance monies are not siphoned off by corrupt leaders, but that there's transparency and accountability for how governments spend those monies, including in democracies, but not just limited to democracies. Uh, to give one just extreme example of uh, uh, the repression that we have seen under cover of the pandemic, it was in the early weeks after COVID uh, broke and Ilham Aliyev, who rules Azerbaijan in dynastic fashion, said, you know, political opposition is a threat to public health. Think about it. Political opposition is a threat to public health. It's very convenient. Uh, uh, in the Philippines, Duterte, you know, the Philippines is a great U.S. ally. Uh, but the president has invoked emergency decrees uh, that can keep peaceful protesters off the streets, et cetera, et cetera. So um, helping make sure that institutions function and can check and balance each other is just so central to democracy. Could I just say one last thing? Because I know we're near the end. Uh, there is a large school of, quote, realists out there, including many who I find, uh, I suspect, teach with Matt in the academy, uh, who think that we should practice great power politics in kind of an amoral, values-free way. Right. Uh, and uh, my argument on that is that that would then make us like the Russians and the Chinese and that mm -hmm. what motivates Americans and why we won the Cold War and why actually strategically the United States has performed uh, is because the American people want more than mocked politic. Uh, they actually want to believe we are helping other people, that there is extensive support in America for uh, democracy as a component of foreign policy. And again, that that's, a, that's an advantage for us because people around the world uh, see us in a different light because we will stand up for uh, their rights and freedoms. And they know that in China and Russia, it's just the opposite, that the way the Chinese and Russian systems treat their own people is a precursor of how they will treat other countries. I just add my favorite quote from George Kennan, because people read the long telegram, hardly anybody gets down to the last couple of hundred words where basically Ken says, you know what? I mean, just paraphrasing, but he says, we're going to win the Cold War. He says, we're stronger than they are. We're better than they are. God's on our side. You know, we have every advantage. He goes, the only way we will lose is if in the process of competing with the enemy, we become the enemy. 
essentially saying exactly what you're doing. If you give up your greatest competitive advantages, your freedom and your free economy, essentially all you've done is, is undermine your own competitive advantages over your competitor. Yeah, good thought. Matt, do you have a few last words? Well, maybe, maybe just one, um, you know, looking um, forward, one of the um, criticisms that uh, uh, people have of the United States is that we're too short term in our focus uh, and that China can plan for the long term with Belt and Road Initiative and, and other things. Uh, and um, uh, Dr. Carafano mentioned the, the long telegram. I actually think the United States has had a fairly consistent grand strategy since 1945 of uh, building alliances in important geopolitical regions. Uh, creating, um, promoting open markets in other countries and internationally, uh, promoting um, democracy and, and freedom and human rights. Uh, and um, if other countries want to play by those rules, we, we want to have them as part of the club. Even former enemies like uh, Japan and Germany were invited to join uh, after World War II. Uh, and then we defend that system from those who want to challenge it, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, uh, the North Koreans. Uh, and so I think that's been a pretty remarkable grand strategy for 75 years, shows that the United States is actually pretty good at maintaining a, a long-term strategic direction. Uh, and that, that uh, would be the basis of a, of a, uh, a good strategy uh, for this new era of great power competition. Um, so um, uh, again, I'm uh, much more optimistic about where we are and where we're going uh, than many commentators. Yeah, but <clears throat> thank you. So anybody else have a final remark or two? We're down to the last uh, last minute here, I think. Um, but I, if not, I want to thank um, all four of you very, very much for your patience in um, helping me put the program together here. Um, I am I am thrilled to hear the long perspective um, that we've had today. It, it helps a lot as you look at um, local events today, which can sometimes be somewhat dispiriting and confusing, but taking the big, bigger perspective um, helps a lot. Democracy remains the strongest political system we have. And um, I think, as we've heard today, individual freedom and free enterprise uh, produces st stronger economies. And the continuity in foreign policy is a characteristic of democracies far more than autocracies, and in those facts, we all have reason to hope. So thank you very much.